Amen and amen. If you would, turn with me to our anchor text for this morning. If you have your Bibles, uh, you, some of you have a version Bible app. Some of you have it on your mobile devices. Uh, unfortunately, we won't have uh, the scriptures to follow along with on uh, the screens. However, if you're on version, our notes, all the sermon notes are also available on version, and you can follow along there. Uh, We've been taking this journey as we are examining the, the, the church at Corinth. We believe that they are a beautiful picture of what it looks like to be better together. Uh, Paul writes to the church at Corinth in response to some questions and some challenges and some issues that they were having in that church, that they were a very supernatural church. In fact, Paul testifies in chapter one that they, they fell short in no gift. Uh, in terms of operating and functioning in the gifts of the Spirit, Man, they were right ahead of the curveball. I mean, way ahead of the curveball. They, 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 they were on surface uh, very, what appeared to be very spiritual people. Uh, but then Paul challenges that and he says, look, I can't even speak to you as spiritual because there are still divisions among you. And Paul alludes to the fact that their division suggested the level of their maturity. Uh, and part of the divisions were around their preferences, uh, a lot of times in life, we can miss the principle of a thing because of our preferences. It is possible to miss the substance because of our preference for a certain style, and it is possible to miss God's message entirely because we're not comfortable with the methodology. And what Paul begins to address in the opening chapters of 1 Corinthians is he's calling this church to rise above their preferences that are now dividing them. Preferences around style, uh, preferences around methods, and even preferences around personalities. The church was divided about who they thought was the better communicator. And some said, I like Paul. Some said, I like Apollos. And some said, I like Cephas, which is another name for Peter. And because of that, when the church should have been moving forward, they were divided. Now, how many of you realize Jesus said it this way, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And they were short-circuiting their potential because of their preferences. And instead of being a united front, united around one vision, one purpose, one mission, they now had factions and they now had cliques. And it was counterproductive to the health and the vitality and the fruitfulness of their church. Uh, now, the principles we're going to share in this series are not just limited to what God does in the context of the local church or biblical community. These principles are transferable. You can take these principles from God's word and apply them in your family, how you do family, how you do parenting, how you do business, how you interact in all of your interpersonal relationships because God's principles are transferable, okay? So I encourage you uh, to begin to look at the scriptures through that lens that we are indeed better together. God created humanity not to exist in isolation. In fact, we read in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18 where God says it was not good for the man to be alone. In most cases, we think of that in the context of Adam and Eve just having a marital relationship. But we know it extends beyond that because in, in Genesis 1, he gives them this commandment and he says, be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. So God created us. He created humanity to exist 
to coexist and to thrive in the context of community. Turn to your neighbor and say this, you need me. <laughs> you weren't so sure, you weren't so sure about this. Because uh, 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 most times we want to say, I need you. But the truth is, you also need me. We need each other. God created man to be dependent upon him, independent from sin, and interdependent on each other. That's the way God designed humanity to live. Dependent on him, independent from sin, and interdependent on each other. So over the duration of this series, this is what I'm asking you, asking you to do. I want, I want to be crystal clear. Uh, I'm asking you to take some risks. I'm asking you to risk the comfort and safety of isolation in exchange for the vulnerability of interaction with others. I'll say that again. What Wendy and I are asking you to do, what Wendy and I are asking our church to do when we say we're better together, we're asking you to risk the comfort and apparent safety of isolation. Let me tell you what isolation will do, right? You, you can control what happens in your space. But once you come out of isolation, and you begin to engage with others, you run the risk of being hurt. You run the risk of being misunderstood. You run the risk of being betrayed. Yet it's the very thing that God invites us into. Are y'all with me? And I'm going to give you a few reasons why we're giving you this invitation. First and foremost, because that's the way God designed us to live in the context of community, to be societal, to be communal, to be interdependent. But sometimes, y'all, y'all know what I'm talking about. It can be risky. It can be messy. But I'm just going to present a, a case this morning for why we're better together. Why I need you and why you need me and why we need each other. Are y'all with me? So let's look to the text. I will be reading from the Living Bible uh, translation of these verses, and uh, we'll be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 21, and then I'll end with verse 27. It says, our bodies have many parts. Somebody say, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> But, many, but the many parts make up only one body when they're all put together. Many parts, one body. So it is with the body of Christ. Each of us is a part of the one body of Christ. Some of us are Jews and some Gentiles. Some servants and some are free. But the Holy Spirit has fitted us all together into one body. Notice that in spite of our diversity, God invites us into unity. He speaks of ethnic differences, 
Jew and Gentile. He speaks of socioeconomic distinctions. Some are servants and some are free. But the scripture says all of us, all of us, regardless of our differences, are filled with the same spirit who invites us to be one body. Unity amidst our diversity. It's interesting when you read the book of Acts that the scripture says that those who were Christ followers, those who were disciples, were first called Christians at Antioch. The reason that is so profound is because Antioch was a very diverse commercial center. The interesting thing is during the day, uh, everybody would come into the market and they would do business and they would do commerce. But at night, everyone retreated to their own sector of the city. It would be a lot like living in Chicago in the 1920s, where there was a Polish neighborhood, an Italian neighborhood, an African-American neighborhood, uh, a Caucasian neighborhood, uh, you name it. And when night came, you couldn't cross over into that other neighborhood. But then something transformational happened in that city. There was a church that was planted in Antioch. And all of a sudden, the church became the hub for what was happening in Antioch. And for the first time in the history of that city, people from all different backgrounds, people from all different ethnicity, ethnicities were gathering in Antioch and worshiping together. And for that reason, for that reason, their unity in spite of their differences, the scripture says, those people act just like Jesus. For the very first time, disciples were called Christ followers because they had blurred lines when it came to their differences. An entire city that was once marginalized and everybody had their neighborhood and their own sectors based on their preferences, based on what was comfortable, was now gathering in the church. And the church became the catalyst for the transformation of that city. And they looked at those people, they looked at that church and they said, these people act just like Jesus. You know why? Because we're better together. And what Paul is addressing in the church of Corinth is, you and I, you and I, if we are born again, are vessels and conduits of one and the same Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit, if I'm yielded to him, is not going to tell me one thing and tell you something else. God is not schizophrenic. The same Holy Spirit that indwells me is not going to tell me to love my brother in one breath and then despise them because they're different from you. There are voices that we subject ourselves to and submit to and entertain that are not the voice of the Holy Spirit. Any voice, any voice that speaks division and separation and strife based on my preferences based on my style, based on my affinity for a particular personality is not the voice of God. But that's what we have become. When what God is inviting us is to look and be and live more like the church at Antioch that transformed an entire city because they realized you might have a different background, you might have different experiences than I've had, but guess what? We are better together. Now imagine being the church of Antioch. That must have been some messy church services. 
because people who had no dealings with each other before that are now sitting on the same pew. And God says, this is beautiful in my sight. Can I, I think I said this last week. Let me tell you this. Unity is messy. Unity is not always effortless and seamless. Unity requires compromise. That means it can't always be my way. That means there are times if we are going to surround ourselves around a common vision and a common principle that I must sometimes give up. And my wife and I do this all the time. It's one of the principles we live by in our marriage. Right? You can be right or you can live in peace. Oh, here's, here's another principle. That you can't have a tug of war if one person lets go of the rope. You know why? Because we realize that in life and in marriage, we're better together. Can I, can I tell you what most of our quarrels and strife and, and divisions are about? It's not that people don't want the same thing. What we're fighting about is how to get there. When you realize that, you know what? We want the same thing. We want the same outcomes. Who cares whether you go down the tollway or 75? Is this argument worth how? Is this argument really worth? Uh, 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 is how we get there really worth this argument in injuring this relationship? Simply because of my preference about how to get there when we both want the same thing? And it's so painful to watch when my wife and I sit with couples. We sit there and we hear them and they both want the same thing. But what they won't budge on is how we're going to get there. And they don't realize, we don't realize we're better together. And so sometimes unity requires that I give up something to gain something. In life, you can't always have your cake and eat it too. And that's what unity looks like. Sometimes I have to give up something, my way of doing things for God's way of doing things. And you've heard me say this before, you and I cannot have God's results doing things our way. And God's way sometimes says, if you're going to walk with me, you will have to deny yourself. You will have to take up your cross and then you have the privilege of walking with me. Because Jesus says we're better together. But unity requires compromise. And that's what he's talking about here. He's talking about a church where there were Jews and Gentiles, bond and free, but he says you're all a part of one body. Come on, somebody, confirm it right there. <laughs> and what the church has become in many ways is a body of believers that looks more like an autoimmune disease. Say, Pastor, what are we talking about? I'm talking about when the body turns on itself.
when the scripture says we are the body of Christ. Here's another example of what the body of Christ looks like. We look more like the body parts of Christ than we do the body. And that's what Paul is addressing. And so, so he continues in verse 14. He says, yes, the body has many parts, not just one part. If the foot says, I'm not a part of the body because I'm not a foot, because I'm not a hand, does that make it any less a part of the body? Oh, well, I'm not like Malak and, and, and Shalanda, and I'm not like Kia and Carla, so I really don't matter. Uh, uh, notice what it says. And, and, and what would you think if you heard an ear say, I am not a part of the body because I'm only an ear and not an eye? Would that make it any less a part of the body? Can I just say this? Uh, another, another great, <laughs> how do I call it? It's a mindset. It's a way that we think. That, also, that always hinders, that often, I should say, hinders what the church could be is this thing called the comparison trap. Notice what he says. The foot saying, I'm not a hand, so I don't matter. The ear is saying, I'm not an eye, so I don't matter. The truth is, we think that life is more glorious for others from where we sit. So, so here's the eye. I get to see all of the beauty and wonder of God's creation. And the ears jealous because the eye sees everything. But those eyes also see all the pain and degradation in our world. Uh, uh, so, so then the eye says, man, I get to see all this beautiful stuff. <laughs> and the ear gets to hear all this beautiful music. So while the eye is complaining about what it can't hear, the ear is complaining about what it can't see instead of celebrating what each part uniquely brings to the body. Are y'all with me? And acknowledging that we are better together, that we are better together. You guys know what happens when a, some, someone has impaired vision or when someone is blind what your ears instinctively do is compensate for the deficiency in another part of the body being the eyes. If you've ever met someone who's blind, I work with a guy who's, uh, he has death perception issues, but he walks around and he has this long cane. And if he's sitting at his computer, he can see everything, but he walks around with this long cane and, 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 and man, he can sense people. It's almost like watching a bat. Like he can also almost gauge how far people are from him, even though he can't see them because another part of his body begins to compensate for the deficiency in his eyes. And in many ways, the church, the body of Christ, has begun to compensate what the, uh, for what the other isn't doing. Because a lot of times we don't see ourselves as valuable to the body when the truth is, you matter. Are y'all with me? I'm going somewhere with this. I'm going, all of that so far, City Church, just so you know, is my introduction. I'm going somewhere with this. Uh, where was I? Verse 17. It says, suppose the whole body were an eye. Then how would we hear? And that's the danger 
of trying to make everybody conform to your preferences. If everybody conforms to your preferences, everybody becomes an eye and there's no ears. And you've heard us say it here before. If two people are identical, one of them becomes unnecessary. And God by design has said, you know what? I need some people to be eyes. I need some people to be ears. And when they come together and actually work together, the body is so much better. Mm. So Paul's addressing a whole lot of stuff. He's addressing our preferences. He's addressing the comparison trap. He's addressing our insecurities. I don't matter because I'm just an eye. And oh, how I wish I were an ear. These are things that cause the body of Christ not to function to its full potential. Verse 18, it says, but that's not the way God has made us. He made many parts of our bodies and has put each part just where he wants it. Can I say this? That our issue is not really with our brother. The issue is really, I don't like what God made me. God, you made a mistake when you gave me these hips and you gave me these eyes and you gave me these abilities or lack thereof. I wish I were more athletic. I wish I were smarter. I wish I were born into a different family. And the problem is the fact that the scripture says God has placed each member in the body the way he chose. And my issue ultimately is not comparing myself with my brother. Ultimately, what I'm saying is, God, I'm dissatisfied that in your omnipotence and your omniscience, you shortchanged me. You made me a pinky toe. When what I really wanted to be was an ankle. I don't know where I came up with that. (laughs) The issue, my complaint, is not with my brother. It's really my unhappiness with what the Father made. That's That's my ultimate complaint. If we were to parse... This entire passage, line upon line, it would hinge on this verse that God has placed everyone in the body just the way he intended. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 says that we are God's workmanship. That word workmanship in the Greek is a word poema, where we get the word poem. It denotes the work of a skillful artist or a skillful writer, where every single word is carefully placed exactly where the writer intended that the writer took into consideration the words that they used, the word pictures it would conjure, the rhythm of the verse, the rhyme of the verse, none of it was an afterthought. That when God created you, he created a masterful poem with every single word exactly where he wanted it to be. And it says we are God's workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which he prepared in advance that we should walk in. And if I've said it one time, I've said it a thousand times here at City Church. Who you are and who you're created to be is not for you to decide. It's for you to discover. Because the Father decided who and what you would be. 
So celebrate the fact that you are an ear, even though every now and then you got to deal with some wax. Because, because you might say, you might say, I wish I were a foot so I could wear those beautiful red bottoms. Come on, somebody. But as glamorous as it is to wear some red bottoms, every now and then, being a toe means you're going to have to deal with some toe jam. I did that on purpose. You know why I did that on purpose? Just to say that no matter who you are or what you were created to be, we all got stuff to work through. Everybody. So let's not trade the lives that God by design gave us for a life that someone else is living. Stephen Furtick said it this way, uh, 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 most of us um, compare our behind the scenes to everybody else's highlight reel. You see, what we're seeing this morning is your highlight reel. You shaved this morning, some of you. You got dolled up. You picked out a nice outfit that was coordinated. And most of the time, that's what we do. We compare our behind the scenes, my flip-flop pajama-wearing self, to what I see on Instagram. And even the stuff that's in, on Instagram is filtered. It's an edited life. They only show you what they want you to see. And all of a sudden, that becomes our aspiration. And my favorite one, no, just my favorite one. Y'all know them selfies? They have them selfies, right? They take the selfie. <laughs> and they got that nasty closet behind them with the clothes on the floor. Don't even realize it. All dolled up. And behind you, we see how you're really living. But I'm going somewhere with this. This is where, this is where, this is where we're going we to wrap this thing up real quick. Real quick. Uh, Paul writes in verse 27 of the living Bible translation of this verse. Now, here's what I'm trying to say. What was all of that about? <laughs> Pastor Ray, this is what it was about. Now, hear what I'm, here's what I'm trying to say. All of you together are one body. And each one of you is separate. Listen to what it says. Each one of you is a separate and necessary part of the body. When the scripture says that we're better together, it does not mean you lose your individuality. It says that you are a separate part of it, but you are also necessary. So what the scripture is saying, you do your part well, and I'll do my part well, and everybody is better because of it. Now, again, all this can only happen if I'm willing to risk the security of isolation in exchange for the vulnerability and the uncertainty 
of community. Are y'all with me? It means I have to come out of the shadows and be willing to take the risk of showing myself friendly. None of this matters unless I choose, unless I choose that I'm going I'm to come out of isolation. Now, here we go. Here it is. I'm going to go fast and furious. Why is this important? It's important because you and I were never meant to walk through life alone. Point number one, community is God's answer. It is God's answer to isolation and apathy. Community is God's divine answer to isolation and apathy. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. This is from the voice translation. Notice what it says. It says, let us consider how to inspire each other to greater love and to righteous deeds. Notice what he says. He says we're supposed to inspire each other. There's supposed to be uh, an effect when people get together where they are motivating and inspiring each other. You know why? Because community is God's antidote. It is his answer to apathy. Yesterday in Fight Club, we were talking about this, the importance of community. And one of the guys says, man, as you were talking, Pastor Ray, I I started to think about solitary confinement. I said, man, that's good. Well, I'm going to preach that tomorrow. Because in war camps, what they would do with some prisoners of war is they would isolate them. Now, listen to this. Most of us isolate ourselves as a reward to ourselves. (laughs) But in prison camps, they isolated people as a punishment. Not just as a punishment, but as an effective way to break them down. You know what happens in isolation? People lose their minds. And let me tell you how they lose their minds. They start to create what we call here at City Church an inner script, an inner dialogue. They start talking to themselves and saying things to themselves that may not be true. And it is the weapon of the enemy to isolate us so that we can begin to tell ourselves stories about ourselves, stories about God, stories about other people that are not true. It happens in isolation. And the only antidote to that is human interaction. I guarantee you, your isolation is not helping you. Let me tell you why it's dangerous. It's dangerous because nobody in this room, including myself, has a 360-degree appreciation for themselves. You may think you know everything that you need to know. You may think you're the smartest person in the room. But anybody who believes that about themselves is living with a gigantic blind spot. And it is in isolated, what did I say? Solitary confinement that the enemy causes us to believe We know what's best for us. We know what's really happening. We know what's really good. When nothing could be farther from the truth. They use that in in prison systems to break people down. And it has become our choice of how we deal with people. Wrong answer. 
So he says, he says, this is what he says in Hebrews chapter 10, let us consider how to inspire each other to greater love and righteous deeds, not forgetting to gather as a community, as some have forgotten, but doing what? Encouraging each other, especially as the day of his return approaches. There it is, Hebrews chapter 24, 10 verses 24 and 25. He says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. This is not Pastor Ray. This is God's word. He says it's good for the soul because he wants us to come out of isolation. I'm trying to say isolation and solitary confinement altogether. He's trying to get us to come out of isolation. Now, let me tell you why isolation is so dangerous again. Let me tell you one more reason, one more reason. Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 1. Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 1 says, The man who isolates himself rages against all sound judgment. It says, the man who isolates himself seeks his own way and he rages against all. You know what that verse is saying? People isolate themselves. Another reason that they isolate themselves is not just for self-preservation. It's because they want to do what they want to do and not be accountable to nobody. That's why people isolate. Because if, if nobody's around me, I ain't got nobody to be accountable to. And it says, they isolate themselves because they seek their own way and they rage against sound judgment. That, one, that means when people are trying to, tell, trying to help you, you push back against it. I don't wanna hear that. So I'm gonna go back into my closet and do what I wanna do on my terms. And that's how Samson lived. Samson is one of those characters in the Bible who is unique in that he lived solo. And that's what our world glamorizes. Rambo, one man army. Get in there, kill everybody all by yourself. When God created us to live and thrive in the context of community. It's a big deal. So number one, community is God's answer to isolation and apathy. Number two, community is God's answers to life's uncertainties. You say, Pastor Ray, what do you mean? No one person has all the answers. And when life gets uncertain and you're not sure which way to turn, it's, I hope and I pray you have someone that you can confide in. Because no one person is created with all the answers and all the solutions for all of life's uncertainties. And that's why Proverbs says it's safer. It's safer to have people around you. Isn't that what the Bible says? That in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. Most lives are shipwrecked because we isolate ourselves and we make unilateral decisions and we got nobody to talk to. Yet the scripture says there is safety. Listen to me. When I ask you to risk isolation, what I'm asking you and inviting you into is safety because there is safety in the multitude of counselors that it is possible in isolation to think you made the right decision, but the truth is it's possible to be sincere and still be sincerely wrong. Every now and then you gotta have people in your life that can say, man, you might need to rethink that. Community is God's solution to life's uncertainties because it provides safety. There is safety in the multitude of counselors. And number two, it, because it's supportive, it's supportive. Ecclesiastes chapter four, verses nine through 12. Why are we better together? The scripture says two can accomplish more together. If one falls, the other will pull him up. 
But if a man falls when he is alone, he's in trouble. In isolation, you have no support. You have no backup. And Jesus is saying when life gets uncertain, you need somebody who can pull you up. And it can only happen in the context of community, not in isolation. Notice what he says. He says, uh, also on a cold night, two under the same blanket gain, gain warmth from each other. But how can one be warm alone? And one standing alone can be attacked and defeated. But two can stand back to back and conquer. I'm talking about life's uncertainties. That when you're going through life with people, you're going to have people who got your back. You and I don't have the benefit of support and backup in isolation. And God says, my solution is for you to risk isolation so that you have people who've got your back. And I know that more time, in fact, Dennis Richards is in the service and more than once, Dennis has had my back emotionally speaking life into me. You need it. Third reason, he says we need community for life's uncertainties. Oh man, let me just say this. I text my buddy, I text my buddy. Uh, uh, He's my chiropractor. And the reason I text my buddy when I was preparing this message, I said, man, help me with this, man. Because I know you run marathons. You don't just run marathons, you run super marathons. So my buddy, Dr. Trevin, runs a 100-mile marathon every year. 100 miles. I ain't talking about 26.2, 100 miles. So I text him. I said, man, I know you do the super marathon. How long is it? 100 miles. I said, I know you also have people that are designated at different intervals during your run to run with you. You don't run 100 miles by yourself. And I said, it's, it's at 25, it's at 50, and it's at 75, right? He said, no, you're not allowed to have anybody running with you until mile 50. So you run the first 50 miles by yourself. I said, so pump the brakes. Help me understand this now. Uh, uh, so, so, so Boston Marathon 26.1, New York Marathon 26.1. So you run for 50. And I said, I know y'all got rest stops along the way. No stopping for 100 miles. Now, you can, you can, you can drink while you're moving. You can eat while you're moving, but for 100 miles, you can't stop. And you can't have any help until you get to mile 50. Now, this is what he said, because he's writing a book. He said at mile 50, as many of your friends can join you one at a time at mile 50, and they can run as long as they want. And he says, Ray, it's just like life. People will join you when it's convenient for them. And they will abandon you when it's convenient for them. When you still got a whole race ahead of you. He said, but every now and then, every now and then, there's a true friend that won't just show up at mile 50, but they will show up in the middle of the night when I've got to run a 25 mile, 25 mile stretch in the dark. And while I'm running, They're holding the flashlight so I can see and so they can see. And it's the toughest part of this marathon. And they run with me for 25 miles until the break of dawn. 
because we're better together. Some of us need those kinds of friends in our lives. Not just the ones who show up at mile 50, and, but who gonna run with you in the middle of the night when you can't see who's gonna hold your flashlight. I'm talking about the people that just show up in your life when life is good. I'm talking about people who are there for you when your life is falling apart. That's who I'm talking about. Because we're better together. And you better have somebody while you're in your isolation. You better have somebody in your life for life's uncertainties. When you hit that 25-mile stretch in the middle of the night and you look around like, man, who's going to run with me? That's too late to find a friend. Those friends and those friendships should have been cultivated long before your midnight hour. This is where I close. Uh, he says community answers life's uncertainties because it's safer. You have wise counsel. Number two, because it's supportive. There are people there for you. In fact, I had lunch with Tony, and uh, he came and picked me up from work, and we came out of the parking lot. Man, and I saw all these geese. Hadn't seen geese in a long time. And the whole time I'm kind of in message preparation more. You guys know, man, geese are better together. That V formation, when they have to fly long distances, they realize I can't get that far by myself. We fly together. And they don't only fly together, they take turns. Because the guy out front, when he gets tired, and he can't lead the pack by himself anymore, guess what? He falls to the back of the formation and somebody else takes his spot. You bet have somebody. You also heard how I said that? You bet have somebody. <laughs> In your life, who can trade places with you when you're tired? With your isolated self. I want to shock you out of complacency. I want to shock you out of complacency. Not just to have people in your life, but to have the right people in your life. Because most of our relationships are superficial. Got a whole bunch of fair weather fans. Friends. Got a whole bunch of fans and groupies. Not friends. It's a whole bunch of people in the 80s who had millions of people when they wore spandex and had big hair and lipstick. Where are those people now that were flocking to their concerts? No, I'm serious. Where are those people now who were flocking to their concerts now that you got a pot belly and a goatee? And you got a mullet in the back with no hair right here. Y'all ever seen any of them cats? It's like, bro, just cut that off, man. Why you got the ponytail and nothing up here? Just cut it off. No, those people weren't your friends. They were groupies. They were your fans. You did something for them. And as long as you could no longer do anything for them, they went to the next big thing and the next hot thing. Better have people in your life uh, who are going to support you. Last thing, uh, uh, for life's uncertainties, for life's uncertainties, it's because it's smarter. Proverbs chapter 28 and verse 26 says, those who trust their own insight... I love this. Those who trust their own insight are foolish. But anyone who walks in wisdom is safe. Notice what he's saying. 
if all you got is your own wisdom to depend on, you a fool. I didn't say it. It's in the Bible. Just in case, you're like, why Pastor Ray cussing me? I ain't cussing. I'm reading scripture. Those who trust their own insight. Now, this is what scripture says, Romans chapter 12 and verse 3. And I promise you, this is where I'm going to close. I promise you, this is where I'm going to close. Romans chapter 12, verse 3 says, Let no man think of himself more highly than he ought, but let him think of himself soberly according to the measure of faith he has been dealt. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Don't think of it. And this is what culture has tried to get us to, to believe. If it's to be, it's up to me. I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps. That's what we believe. And there's some truth to being independent and, and handling your business and taking care of yourself, but we're so much better together. And this is, what, this is, why, uh, this is why that's critical. Because there's four kinds of people in the world. There's the consciously competent. These are people who know that they know. Have you ever met somebody who just knew that they knew this stuff? Just, they just know I got this. Wasn't it Terrell Owens who said, man, it ain't bragging if you can back it up. And then there's some people in life that you know that they're consciously competent. They know that they know. Then there's some other people you're going to meet in your life who are unconsciously competent. Unconsciously competent. That means they don't know that they know. Man, they're like really good at what they do, but they don't even realize how good they are. Those people are some of the most humble people to work with because they just do stuff, man, and they don't even know how good and how valuable they are. And a lot of times people take advantage of them because of that. People who are consciously competent are usually puffed up with pride and arrogance because they know how good they are. The unconsciously, unconsciously competent, man, they don't know that they know. Man, they're really good, but they don't know how good they are. And it's like, if you're not careful, people will take advantage of you and use you for what you can do for them. There's a third kind of person, uh, and that is the consciously incompetent. The consciously incompetent is someone who knows that they don't know. It's like, man, I ain't good at this. Bruh, can you help me? Anybody ever meet somebody like that? It might be your boss who's got the title, and you're doing all the work. Oh, I got one witness. <laughs> I got one witness. But the good thing about that boss is he's not pretending that he knows something. He knows that he doesn't know, so he asks for help. Oh, man. But here's the worst of the bunch. The unconsciously incompetent. These are people who don't know that they don't know. And in these situations, the Scripture says you're better together. Because people who love you are going to tell you when you got lipstick on your teeth. They're going to tell you when you got that salad when you smile. You don't know, you don't know. And that's why the scripture says, a man who trusts his own insight is a fool. Because you think you know everything, but you don't. This is where we close. The band can come, and I want to pray for you. Finally, community is God's answer to spiritual growth and maturity. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 16 says, He makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does its own special work. Each part. That means you're doing something special. I'm doing something special. It's not identical, but it's necessary. It says as each part does its own work, it helps the other parts to grow. So when I'm my best for God 
it helps you grow. There's something about what I do that impacts what happens in your life because we are all the part of the body of Christ. It says, so that the whole body is healthy and growing and it is full of love. Ephesians chapter four and verse 16 says, if you're gonna grow, if you're gonna be healthy, if you're gonna be mature, it only happens in the context of community. If you read all of scripture, very little transformation happened in a crowd. It usually happened in the context of community. And so I say all of this, not just because we're launching small groups today, but because it should be a way of life for everyone who is a Christ follower. But as we launch small groups, this is what's gonna happen this afternoon. We're gonna go from sitting in rows, we're gonna go from sitting side by side to sitting face to face. We're gonna go from rows to sitting in circles. And that's where life happens. Not just because we got everybody in this room, right? The transformation doesn't happen because people are in this room. It doesn't happen because you're just sitting side by side or behind somebody. No, transformation happens in circles. Most of what we read in scripture happened when Jesus was having one-on-one intimate conversations with his circle. Didn't always happen in the crowd. It happened in community. And most of all, most of all, Today, when people gather in those circles, it's going to be a place where people can belong. They can belong even before they believe. Even before they believe. Some of you may be having a crisis of faith. Thomas came and he told the disciples, I know y'all seen Jesus, I ain't seen him. And unless I can touch him, put my finger in his side to put my finger in his feet, I ain't gonna believe. This is somebody who had walked with Jesus for three years. We all deal with a crisis of faith from time to time. Thomas was having a crisis of faith, but guess what happened? The scripture says Thomas stayed with the disciples for eight days, even though he didn't believe. You know what that means? The disciples who had walked with him were not critical of him for not believing. They didn't criticize him for where he was like, man, this guy backslidden or he's an unbeliever or whatever. They didn't beat him down. They created community. They created a place where Thomas could belong before he believed. And not just belong before he believed, they created a place where he could belong until he believed. And so in the circles that gather today, you may be wrestling with something. I see uh, Jonathan here. Jonathan just lost his brother-in-law last, yesterday, Friday, on Friday. I said, you going to be in church? He said, yeah, I'm going to be there. Because he understands the power of community. Not because we needed him to come. But he recognized, man, this is my tribe. They're going to be here, and we're going to walk through this thing together. His brother-in-law just passed. And most of us won't get out of bed if it rains outside. Jonathan recognizes we're better together. We're better together. And I say all that to say not for any ulterior motive. The reason I say it is because I don't want you to miss out on the best part of what God has for you. And it may not come from me as your pastor. It may not come from Wendy, but it may come from the person who is sitting in the pew next to you. And we create these opportunities in small groups so that you can encounter God and God can use ordinary people to be his voice his hands. And that is the vision and the mission of City Church. We're called to love God, to love people, to serve our city, and to serve our world. Let me pray for you. Father, we come to you now in Jesus' name.